Well, hey, Heritage family, how we doing? Well, it is so good to be with you, and I love, because of technology, that we can gather as one church in multiple locations and continue to worship the King of Kings together this weekend. And so with that said, I want to welcome our family in Rock Island, men in Kiwani, those of you joining us online, and yes, the rowdy crowd here at the Bettendorf campus. I I am so glad that you're here, and I really believe that our God is going to speak powerfully to each of us this morning as we engage the scripture together. Now, as a church family, this summer, we have been taking moments uh, to explore and to engage some of the great men and women of faith that we find in Hebrews chapter 11. And as we've examined their lives, we've been seeking to glean from them some practical ways or things that we can apply to our own lives so that we can become great men and women of faith ourselves. And here's the absolute truth that I want you to hear today. God desires that you, that you would be a great man or woman of faith. In fact, turn to your neighbor right now at all of our campuses and turn to your neighbor and say, God desires that you be a great man or woman of faith. Do that right now, right where you're at. Well done. Well done. All right. Now do me a favor. Turn to the neighbor that you didn't choose. All right. And I want you to apologize and say, yes, God desires that you be a great man or woman of faith. All right. Do that right where you're at. Well done. Well done. Because here's the deal. God's desire for us is that we would be great men and women of faith. And we're taking moments to explore some of the great men or women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And as awesome as that is, God's desire isn't for us just to explore their stories. His desire is that we would learn from them and that we would walk out of these doors as giants of the faith ourselves, back into the context that he's placed us, back into our workplaces, back into our homes, back into the store, even the restaurant that you're going to go to this weekend, that you would walk into that place as a great giant of faith. Now, faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is defined as this, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's this faith is what the ancients were commended for. And now what I've loved over the last number of weeks, if we've we've taken time to explore Abel and Enoch and Noah and Isaac and Jacob, is that these are men, everyday, ordinary men, just like us. I mean, in fact, as you look at your life, you remember, like, these guys are kind of messed up, all right? They're a little complicated. They just made some dumb decisions, stupid decisions, things that just wreaked all kinds of havoc. But in a moment of faith, these men's lives were transformed, and they became great men and women of faith. They went on to live lives that had an impact, that made a difference, so much so that we're talking about them thousands of years later. But it was the moment that they stepped in faith that they were free to become who God desired that they'd be all along. And that wasn't just true for them, it's true for us. In fact, it's our faith that frees us to become who we are meant to be. It's our faith that frees us to become who we were meant to be. Now, we explored this a little bit last week as we looked at Jacob and how we we kind of explored how for 97 years this guy fought and clawed and wrestled and manipulated and deceived his way, trying to accumulate everything he could to become what he thought he needed to be. But it was in a moment of faith that Jacob was free to become who God desired him to be. And we're going to see the same truth worked out in the life of Jacob's son, Joseph, this weekend as we have a conversation about him. Now, Joseph was very different. He didn't spend his life trying to manipulate and deceive and claw and wrestle his way to become something. But Joseph, rather, was one who had great faith even as a young child. But he would encounter incredibly difficult circumstances, incredibly dark, broken moments in his life. Moments where he could have been free to throw in the towel and say, God, I'm done. I've had it. But what we'll see in his story 
is that it is by faith that Joseph was able to become who God had desired and had meant him to be. Now, here's what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22 says about Joseph. It says, it was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when he left. And so here we see Joseph at the end of his life, 110 years old. He's ready to die. He's ready to to call it in. And he says, listen, and he speaks with great faith. And he says, the day will come when God will fulfill his promise that he gave to Abraham, that he gave to Isaac, and he gave to Jacob, that you will leave Egypt and you will go into the promised land. I mean, this is a bold statement of faith, but it was made by a man who had encountered God's faithfulness and his goodness and how he had encountered God's ability to bring to fruition every promise and dream that he had ever given to Joseph. And it was a statement made by Joseph who had had trusted God and walked with great faith his entire life. And so he can say confidently at the end of his life, like, listen, I have experienced God's faithfulness and watched him show up each and every time. So it is with absolute certainty that I can assure you that you will walk out of Egypt into the promised land. And by the way, when you do that, make sure you take my bones with you because I want to go. And so we see in Joseph's life a man whose faith has marked him deeply. And so let's take a moment to look at Joseph's life, starting in Genesis chapter 37. So if you have your Bible, you have a device, I encourage you, turn or click there. We're going to pick his story up in Genesis chapter 37. This is what it says. It says, Joseph, a young man of 17. Let me pause there. Anybody, like, make really good decisions at the age of 17? You were like, man, I got it all together at 17 years old. All right, those of you who have your hand raised, you are 17, okay? So... Anyways, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wife, and he brought to their father a bad report about them. Joseph was a truth teller, like I used to call him when I was a kid. He was a tattletale, all right? And everyone knows that everyone loves tattletales, right? Okay, not so much. Let's continue on. It said, now Israel, Jacob, Joseph's dad, loved, more than jo- loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he had been born to him in an old age, and not just an old age. He had been born to him, born to Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife. And he made, Jacob made an ornate robe for Joseph. So not only does Joseph's brothers now know that Joseph is the favorite, Jacob gives Joseph a, a daddy loves me more than you robe that he prances around in right? And so so when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to Joseph. And so Joseph's brothers are broken. They're hurt. We talked about this last week, how as parents, if we show favoritism, it always leads to hurt and brokenness in the lives of our kids. And so his brothers are angry. And not only that, scripture doesn't tell us this, but I think that Joseph kind of relished his role as the favorite son. All right. I think he walked around and his daddy loves me more than you robe. And he had a little bit of a swagger. And I think he kind of swung his arm behind him. That's what I used to do when I was cool as a kid. And, and I think he just relished that role. And his brothers hated him. And then the story goes on to say this. It says, Joseph had a dream. You see, throughout scripture, God would use dreams to speak to his people. I think God continues to use dreams to speak to us today as well. But when it says Joseph had a dream, this would have been a message that would have been thought as if God had told Joseph this. And so it says Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood up while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now that's a great dream if you're Joseph. 
If you're Joseph, that's a really good dream. If you're his brothers, you have to be thinking, oh, great. Now not only does dad love Joseph more than us, it appears that God favors him too. Like this is outstanding. Look at how his brothers respond. It says, his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and because of what he had said. So his brothers were just thrilled with this dream. They were furious. They hated him. They already hated him. Now they really hated him. But this wouldn't be the only dream that Joseph would have. In fact, he would go on to have another one. And he didn't apparently learn the first time that you shouldn't, probably shouldn't share with your brothers. And so he goes on to share this one with them. And he says, guys, check this out. You thought that last dream was good. Let me tell you about this one. And he said, the last dream, God made it pretty clear that you 11, my brothers, are going to bow down to me. But in this new dream, this dream I just had, guess what? Not only are you going to bow down to me, mom and dad are too. And that's awesome. And you can imagine his brothers are like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, they were furious. Scripture says that they were incredibly jealous of Joseph. But then it says that Jacob, Israel, dad, it said that he, he took these things and he kept them in mind. And so we don't know how long this went on. All we know is that Joseph's brothers hated him, treated him terribly, didn't even want to see him, didn't want to look at him. Well, eventually a time came when Jacob, dad, sent out Joseph's brothers to take the sheep out into the pasture and to, to graze. And so after a while, the brothers hadn't come home. So Jacob comes to Joseph and he says, hey, I want you to go out and check on your brothers. I mean, I'm not sure they're up to anything good. So I want you to go check them out because you're my tattletale. You'll tell me the truth. You'll give me the dirt. You'll give me the inside scoop. And so he sends Joseph out to find them. Now, Joseph makes his way out into the pasture. He can't find him. He comes across the guy, asks the guy if he's seen him. The guy says, yeah, I've seen him. Here's where they're at. So Joseph makes his way, and eventually Joseph finds them. And as he's off in the distance, his brothers see him, and they say, hey, there's that dreamer. There he is. And while Joseph is walking toward them, they make a plot in which they say, listen, we'll kill this dreamer. We'll kill Joseph. We'll throw him in the cistern. And then we'll see what happens to this dreamer. We'll see if we ever bow down to him. And so look what happens. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, his daddy loves me more than you robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, and there was no water in it. So they take him, they rip off his robe, they throw him in the cistern, and they figured, hey, we'll kill him in a minute, but let's make sure that we fill our bellies first, all right? So they're sitting there, they sit down, they're eating some lunch, and while they're eating, they look off in the distance, and there's some merchants coming, some traders coming, and they thought to themselves, why should we kill Joseph when we can make some money on this deal, and they'll eventually do it anyway? So look at what happens. It says, so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. And so these slave traders come, and his brothers sell them to the, to the traders. And his brothers in that moment, basically what they would have been thinking is, we're not going to kill him. But Joseph won't last long with these slave traders. You see, the slave trade at that time was absolutely brutal. And it wouldn't have been expected for Joseph to make it, to live very long. In fact, when they would have pulled him up out of that cistern, it's likely that those slave traders probably would have beat Joseph up pretty severely. They would have handcuffed him, shackles around his ankles, handcuffs around his wrist. And then they would have put him in a line and chained him with other slaves who would be marched by foot through the desert, through the heat, for 30 days to Egypt. Some of these slaves wouldn't even make it. They wouldn't even survive that trip. But once they got to Egypt, if they made it, if they were alive, they would be paraded onto a stage and bid at like a piece of meat. And that's, in fact, what we see in chapter 39, verse 1. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, 
And Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And so here we see Joseph, the one who had a dream, the one that God spoke to and said, you will be an authority over your brothers. We see this Joseph is now in slavery. And slavery was like a lifelong assignment. Nobody would expect Joseph to get out of slavery. But it's in this moment that we learn something really important. And it's simply this, that faith, not our circumstances, decides our destiny. Faith, not our circumstances, decides our destiny. Pastor Sean talked about this real briefly when we talked about Noah and we looked at his life. But it is a truth that is absolutely lived out in the life of Joseph. And it's one that you and I, if we could just grasp onto this, it would change everything for us. In fact, I remember the day that I grasped this truth. I wouldn't have been able to give it these words. But the moment that it really impacted me deep in my heart was on a day, March 27th, 2009. What had happened leading up to this day was um, my mother, at the age of 53, unexpectedly and tragically had a heart attack and she died. She stepped into the arms of Jesus. And roughly a month later, my grandmother or my grandfather had a stroke. And after a little while, he too stepped into the arms of Jesus. And his wife, my grandma, his bride, his bride of 70 plus years, the moment that he died, And took his last breath. She kind of gave up. And she said, life is done. I mean, she's had a broken heart. You can imagine 70 years of marriage. And so here she is. She's now on her deathbed. And I remember it was March 27, 2009, about 12.02 in the morning. I was downstairs in my little makeshift prayer room at the parsonage of the church that I served at in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I'm down there. And in this season, I was trying to learn how to play the guitar. It was not going well. Okay, I'm down there plunking away, singing Amazing Grace. It was not a pretty picture. But I remember 12.02 in the morning, my wife comes to the top of the stairs and she says, Justin, your brother has been calling you. He's called you eight times. You need to come upstairs. So I made my, I made my way up the stairs. I picked up the phone. And my brother Jonathan is a funeral director. And so I fully expected when I picked up the phone and I called my brother that he was going to let me know that grandma had stepped into the arms of Jesus. He would have been the first to know. And so I called him and I said, Jonathan, I'm sorry I missed your call. And he went on to tell me, he said, Justin, dad's had an accident. And the hospital won't tell me what's happened. All they're telling me is that it's serious and that we need to get here and we need to get there fast. Now, the hospital was about an hour away. I figured that's if you're obeying the speed limit. I figured if my wife and I could get in the car, I could be there in a half hour, right? So we jump in the car, and I am flying down I-94, heading towards Lansing, Michigan. And finally, I got on the phone, and I'm calling the doctor. I'm calling the ER over and over, and eventually I get the ER nurse. And she answers the phone, and she says, hey, are you the pastor or are you the funeral director? And I said, this is a good sign, Right? Somehow she knew that. So for me, I honestly, I kind of took a deep breath and I was, I, I was relieved and I said, hey, you know, I'm the pastor. And so she says, okay, sir, if you can just hold on one second. And so she, she transfers me into the ER doctor and he picks up the phone and, and he goes on to tell me that my dad had had a massive heart attack. And for about 45 seconds, he was relaying everything that they had done and just all the little nuances. And finally, after 45 seconds, it must've seemed like an eternity. I just stopped him and I said, sir, can I stop you just for a second? And can I ask you, is my dad gone? Is my dad dead? And he said, sir, I'm so sorry. But we've done everything that we can do. And I remember on the phone thanking this gentleman for what he had done for my family. And I hung up and I remember pulling off the exit of the highway and turning around and making my way back to the church because my house was right on the corner of the church property. And 
I went into the church, into our sanctuary, which kind of doubled as a gym where we played basketball, and I picked up a basketball, and I remember sitting there with tears streaming down my face, just shooting free throws. And it wasn't because my shot was bad that I was crying, okay? But it was because I was just broken. I was hurting. And then there was a moment that I'll never forget. I got really angry. And I remember saying, God, why would you do this? Why would you take my dad? Don't you know that I've served you faithfully? Don't you know that my mom is gone? Don't you know that my family is serving you faithfully in ministry? Why would you do this? But then here I am on this basketball court in the sanctuary, and I prayed something out loud that I had no idea where it came from, but this is what I said. I said, God, I don't have a mom and a dad now, so I'm going to need you to fill that role. And Lord, I can't do life without them. So I'm going to need you to step up and I'm going to need you to fill in. And I want you to know that was a defining moment in my life. It was the moment when I began to understand that my faith, not my circumstances, would decide my destiny. Because can I tell you, I'm being really honest and transparent here. In that moment, I could have walked away from God. In that moment, the thought crossed my mind that I should just be done with ministry. I should just walk out of that space. I should just give it up and go do something else. But by the grace of God, listen, this was not some great moment of faith for me. This is by the grace of God. I said, listen, I'm not going to throw in the towel. I'm going to grasp on to him in faith. And can I tell you, God has been faithful. He has filled those voids in my life. Do I miss my mom and dad? Oh, my goodness, you have no idea. But he has been faithful to fill those roles in my life. But it was faith, not my circumstances, that ultimately is deciding my destiny. And here I know today that some of you walk into these spaces and you are in the midst of a period of life in which it feels like a bomb has gone off. Some of you have maybe navigated already through those seasons. Or the bad news is some of you are going to be walking into them. And it's going to be a season in which it feels like a nuke bomb has gone off. Your spouse has left you. You've lost your job. Your family has abandoned you. You've hit rock bottom. You've, you have to claim bankruptcy. You can't pay your bills. Or maybe you get a phone call that the person that you thought you couldn't live without has died. And just like me on that day, you're going to have to choose. When the circumstances of life fall apart, we're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose. Am I going to grasp on in faith or am I going to throw in the towel? And, you know, I think Joseph had one of those moments as well. And I don't know if for him, if it was when he was shackled and he was chained and he was marching across the desert, or if it's once he got into slavery. I don't know when that was, but what I know is that Joseph chose to grasp on in faith rather than throwing in the towel. Look at what Isaiah 55 says about God. It says, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You see, I think Joseph had an idea and a plan of how he would ascend to power. But I think God knew that in order for Joseph to rule and to lead effectively, that he had to have a little bit of humility. And he thought, what better way for Joseph to acquire some humility by on his hands and knees washing the floor as important people walk by him and don't even notice him. I wonder if he thought, what better way for Joseph to acquire some humility but having to serve hand and foot, serve food to his masters and pour himself out for the well-being of somebody else. I wonder if God didn't go, you know what, when Joseph ascends to that place of power, I don't want him to think that it was of himself. I don't want him to think that he got to that place because his dad had a big name or that he came from a wealthy family. And so what better way than to make him go down to the lowly form of a slave and for God to do the miraculous to lead him to that place. 
His ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Our faith, not our circumstances, decides our destiny. But don't mistake Joseph's circumstances as a slave to mean that God was absent. In fact, look, in fact, look at what happens as the scripture goes on. It says, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. And with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. You see, God had not forgotten Joseph. God was with Joseph so much so that he gave him great favor in the eyes of Potiphar. I love that Potiphar pointed out in Joseph, it's clear that God's with you, right? And not only did he have great favor in Potiphar's eyes, Potiphar says, listen, I'm giving you control over everything. I mean, everything. The only thing I'm going to worry about is whether I'm going to have steak or whether I'm going to have chicken. And that's all that Potiphar cared about. I think that's a pretty good gig if you ask me, right? But this is the moment in the story where I watch a lot of Disney films with my kids, okay? I'm a dad. And so this is the moment in the story when the music kind of starts, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, something's about to go down. But look at what happens. Check out Scripture. It says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. You kind of hear like the Baywatch music underneath here, all right? Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now, let me pause here for a minute. Joseph is in a far-off land. He's a slave. He, you know, it looks for all intents and purposes on the outside that God's abandoned him, that God hasn't, but that's what it looks like. He's going to be the slave for the rest of his life. He's 18, somewhere between 18 and mid-20s. Now, guys, you remember in the room, like, there's something going on in us at that time, right? And so she is pursuing him. And some would say, dude, just go for it. Just go for it. God's already, like, abandoned you. But look at what he does. But he refused He refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, if you read between the lines here, she isn't just speaking verbally to Joseph. She is aggressively pursuing a sexual encounter with him. So although she spoke to him and pursued Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. And I love this because we just read earlier that God hadn't given up on Joseph, but it's really clear in this dynamic that Joseph hadn't given up on God. And even in the context of slavery, even in the most dire of places, Joseph is deciding in this moment to be faithful, to be obedient, and he's saying, listen, I'm going to honor God regardless of my circumstances. And he displays something really important for us. And it's simply that doing the right thing is always the right thing. Doing the right thing is always the right thing. The first week as we started a conversation about Abel, Pastor Sean shared how giants of the faith stop doing what is wrong and they do what is right. And then we talked and celebrated the reality that indeed because of Jesus, we are free to do what is right. And that is great news. And Joseph does what is right here. And we all love stories of people who do the right thing and rewarded for it, don't we? You know, this week I was on Stalker Book or Facebook 
And I, <laughs> I read the story of somebody in our heritage family that before work was out on a bike ride. And they were on the bike trail between Bettendorf and, and Davenport. And they're flying down the trail. And they came across a guy who had just a nasty wipeout. And as he came across this guy, the guy had blood on his face, had cracked his helmet. And this guy, part of our heritage family, had to be to work that morning. And so some wouldn't have blamed him if he just stopped by and said, hey, you okay, okay, see you later, and just head on out, went on out. But that's not what this guy did. In fact, he grabbed some of the walkers, asked them to tend to him while he got on his bicycle and made the best Lance Armstrong impersonation to get back home, grabbed his truck, came and he picked this man up and his bike, and he took him home. Yes, he was late to work, but he did the right thing. I don't think he got in any trouble at work either, which is a bonus. And we love stories like that. I love this, that story because it's one of our heritage family members who are saying, listen, I'm going to live sent. I'm going to go and I'm going to give myself away. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And that story is awesome. It really is. That is a cool story. But we don't like the stories where somebody does the right thing and then they suffer for it. And that's what happens in the life of Joseph. See, what happens is Potiphar's wife continues to pursue him over and over and over, making sexual advances at him. And Joseph does everything he can to avoid her. In fact, the scripture says that he wouldn't even be with her. But one day, she cleared out the house, and she had her shot. She had her moment. And so Joseph walks in the door, and she lunges at him and grabs onto him. And in that moment, I think Joseph could have said, well, I guess I'm, I'm done. I might as well do this thing, right? But he doesn't do that. In fact, Scripture says that he is so adamant to do the right thing and to honor God that he rips off his cloak and he runs naked out of the house. And then look at what happens. Joseph did the right thing, and this is what happens. It says, she, Potiphar's wife, kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me and make, to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He did the right thing, didn't he? I mean, he honored God. He was obedient. And I look at that and you go, and now he's in prison? Prison? I mean, I look back and I go, really, God? Like, what's your deal here? What's your plan? The guy did the right thing. And now he's in prison? You see, doing the right thing is always the right thing, but there's moments in life where something suffering or hardship comes on us because we did the right thing. And we see that here in the life of Joseph. But look at what 1 Peter chapter 3 says about doing the right thing. It says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. You see, Joseph does the right thing. Thing, and he's thrown into prison. And that's devastating to me. I'm like, God, where are you at? But the truth is, can I tell you, you see God's present in this. Because if a person in that day and age would have been accused of raping somebody like Joseph was, he would have been put to death on the spot. But Joseph wasn't put to death. In fact, I think the master, Potiphar, his willingness to throw Joseph in prison was actually kind of a representation that he didn't necessarily believe his wife. And so here Joseph is now, even though he's not free and he's not in authority like he'd like to be, now he's in the depths of a prison, of a dungeon. But what's really neat about scripture is just like we saw when Joseph was in slavery, he wasn't alone. 
fact, the scripture goes on to say almost the same thing that is when Joseph was in slavery. It says, but God was with him and he showed him favor. He gave him success in everything that he did, so much so that the prison warden gave Joseph charge over everything in the prison. And then guess what happens? Here's Joseph after a while. We don't know how long. He's in charge of the prison and he has these two guys that had worked for Pharaoh come into his, under his care. One was the cupbearer, the one that would give Pharaoh his cup of wine. The other was the baker. And so they come in, and Joseph gets to know them. And after a little while, Joseph walks up to them, and they just look like they've had a rough night. And he says, what, what's going on? What happened? And so they go on to tell him, hey, we both have had some dreams. We're really confused. And so in that moment, Joseph says, well, let's see. God might give me an interpretation for you. And so Joseph gives these men an interpretation, and guess what? The cupbearer that Joseph said, hey, in three days, you're going to walk out of prison. You're going to go, and you're going to serve in your role again, and you're going to place the cup back in Pharaoh's hand. And he says, when that happens, do not forget me, right? Then he looks at the baker, and he says, well, in three days, dude, you're, you're done. Like, I hate to break that news to you, but that's what's going to go down. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. Three days later, the cupbearer is restored to his position. Three days later, the, the baker is, and his head's hanging from a pole, all right? And so it works out just like that. And I imagine as Joseph said goodbye to the cupbearer and he was restored to his position, he thought to himself, it's a matter of days now. It's a matter of days that Joseph is going to go. He's going to tell, tell Pharaoh that, I'm, that this guy in jail is innocent. Free him. He shouldn't be there. And I am convinced that Joseph was like, yes, my time is coming. But guess what happens? The cupbearer forgets him. And for two years, for two years, Joseph sits in this nasty pit dungeon. And I wonder if in those two years he didn't think that, man, this is where I'm going to rot. This is where I'm going to die. This is going to be the end of my days. This is how I'm going to live the rest of my life. But unbeknownst to Joseph, after two years, Pharaoh has a little dream. In fact, he has two of them. And he goes to his magicians, those who are supposed to be an interpret the dream. They say, dude, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to interpret that. And so when it was in that moment that the cupbearer says, you know, Pharaoh, I hate to bring this up, but do you remember a couple years ago when you thought the baker and I kind of were conspiring against you and you threw me into prison? You know, like, sorry to bring that up again. But while we were in there, we had these dreams. And there was this dude that interpreted them for us. And I got to tell you, he was spot on the money. Like, here I am, I'm serving you again. And just like he said, and well, the baker, if you remember, you know, you took him out. He's like, maybe you should go talk to this guy. And so Pharaoh, look at what Pharaoh does. He says, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph. And he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and had changed his clothes, remember, Joseph is foul. I mean, he smells absolutely foul. So they got to wash this dude, scrub him down, shave him, put new clothes on him. And so when he had shaved and had changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. So here's the moment that he had been waiting years for. For two years at a minimum, he had been now standing in front of the very man who could set him free. This is a huge moment. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, this is Joseph's moment, right? You're thinking, when I stand before Pharaoh and I have a chance, I'm seeing daylight. I'm seeing that I can get out of here. You better believe that I would have been like, dude, I'm right here, man. Tell me what you got. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. Like, I can do this. You know? But that's not what Joseph does. Look at what he responds. He says, I cannot do it. I cannot do it. I'm like, hold the phone. Like, I'm reading this going, Joseph, you've lost your mind. You have lost your mind. But look at what Joseph says. He says, I can't do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God. 
but God. Circle in your outline, God, big capital G, because here's the deal. Pharaoh thought he was a God. Pharaoh was worshiped as a God. But what Joseph is saying here is an incredibly bold and courageous statement in which he is saying almost directly, Pharaoh, you're not God, but the real God, the capital G God, will give you the answer you desire. That's a powerful moment. And what we see in in Joseph and we see in other giants of the faith is this really important truth. And it's that God confidence, not self-confidence, is the mark of a giant. God confidence, not self-confidence, is the mark of a giant. In fact, look throughout scripture. You see like Paul has this great confidence in God, right? He charges forward, confident that God has gone before him. Or I think of Peter. Remember when Peter's in the boat and he has this confidence. He says, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come out. And he walks out on the water. There's this confidence in God. And you see it throughout scripture and other great men and women of the faith that they had confidence in God. It was their confidence in him, not in their self, not in their own ability that made them a great giant of the faith. In fact, look at what Jeremiah 17 says about this. It says, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends its roots out by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. God confidence, trusting in God, having great confidence in him. Look at what Proverbs 3 says. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Have confidence in him and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. And he will make your paths straight. You see, in that moment with Joseph, when he's standing before, uh, before Pharaoh, he says, listen, I can't do it. I don't have confidence in my own ability, but my God will. In all of my ways, as I'm standing before you, I will acknowledge God and he will make my paths straight. And so here Joseph is before Pharaoh. Pharaoh goes on to tell him his dreams, the two of them, something about a a skinny cow eating a fat cow and a skinny thing of grain eating a fat thing of grain, right? And, And God gives Joseph this interpretation and not just the interpretation of that dream, gives him a little bit of wisdom like, hey, Pharaoh, here's how you could probably handle that. And in a moment, listen, in a moment, Joseph the one who had been abandoned by his brothers and thrown into a cistern, who had been sold into slavery, who was accused of doing something he didn't do, the one who did the right thing and was thrown into prison, the one who in prison had been forgotten. In a moment, in a moment, he goes from the dungeon, the pit, the prison, to second in command in Egypt as the prince of Egypt. That's powerful because Joseph didn't let his circumstances determine how he was going to live. He said, I'm going to grasp onto faith. Not my circumstances, because I know that's going to decide my destiny. And so eventually, this dream is lived out. God brings to fruition the interpretation. There's these years of abundance followed by years of great famine. So significant of a famine, in fact, that all the nations around them are starving to death. Even the nation that Joseph's brothers and family lives in. And guess what happens 23 years after Joseph is given a dream as a 17-year-old. 23 years after that, guess who comes and bows at Joseph's feet? His brothers. His brothers. And in that moment, they're bowing at his feet. And the very dream, the very promise, the very thing that God had given Joseph comes to fruition. And at some point, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And after they change their pants because they are freaked out, right? He forgives them. 
And then this is what he says. Look at this in chapter 45. It says, God sent me ahead of you. He's talking to his brothers now. God sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here. It was God who put me in prison. It was God who led to me being thrown into as a, as a slave. It was God who ultimately left me abandoned in that prison space. It was God who gave Pharaoh the dream. It was God who gave me interpretation. It was God who sent me here and not you. And he, God, is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. You see, Joseph, at the end of his life, could sit there and speak with great confidence that God, the God who had been faithful to see every dream and promise lived out in Joseph's life, he could say with absolute confidence that God will be faithful and lead you out of Egypt. And can I tell you today, God will be faithful to you and to me. We are meant to be great men and women of faith, but our faith when the difficult days come and the moments come when we're ready to throw in the towel and say, God, where are you? It's going to be our faith if we grasp onto that. We'll decide our destiny. It's that confidence that we have in him, that, that unwillingness to let him go that will see us through just like we see with Joseph. And so what? You might be asking, so what? What does this mean for me today? And I just want to ask one question before we close, and it's this question here. It's how does your faith need to shape your response to your circumstances today? How does your faith need to shape your response to your circumstances today? Because listen, I know some of us in the room and at any of our locations online, maybe listening in a car, you're going through an incredibly difficult season of life. And you feel like your life has been blown up and there are pieces everywhere. Some of us in the room, we've had these moments in the past. And some of us, we're going to be walking into them. But the question today is, how will our faith, how will we grasp onto faith and let that inform how we respond in these circumstances? And maybe you're in that place together today. And as we take a moment here as I close and we pray, I'm going to leave you in a posture of prayer where you can pray right there where you're at. Worship teams are going to lead us. Don't feel like you have to jump up. Don't waste this moment. But just pray like, Lord, I'm in the middle of a wreck right now. How are you asking me to respond? Or maybe you've had a moment that's happened in your life. I told you about mine in 2009, and maybe you didn't respond right. And there's things, still kind of residual effects in you that maybe in this moment of prayer, you need to say, God, will you help me live differently? Will you help me respond differently? Reveal to me the ways that maybe I've given up on you, where today I need to grasp hold of faith. And maybe you're in a place today where like everything's roses in your life and things are good, but you're saying, listen, you're telling me there may come a day when it's really hard for me and I'm going to have to grasp onto faith, maybe in this moment of prayer is a moment for you to say, God, right now on this day, I am choosing to grasp onto faith even before that circumstance happens because I want to be a great man and a great woman of faith. I want to be the man and the woman that you desire me to be. So before I pray, I want to read one passage of scripture. And it's a great promise, one that I've held on to many times in my life, one that will provide great comfort for you, whether you've already walked through a scenario, you're in the middle of it, or you're going to be living into one. And it's found in 1 Peter chapter 5, and it says this, In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered for a little while, not only will God be present in the suffering like he was with Joseph in, in slavery and in prison, not only will he be present, that's a great promise, but he says, I will restore you. I will support you. I will strengthen you. And I, God, will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. That's a great promise, isn't it? 
And so in this moment, as I lead us in prayer, I'm going to ask you right where you're at to just take a posture of prayer, whatever you want to do. Maybe for you it's kneeling or sitting. Maybe you need to move to another spot. But don't waste this moment. Stand on this promise that regardless of our circumstances, God is present. And it's our faith in those moments to grasp onto faith, not our circumstances, that will decide our destiny. Our God is faithful. He was faithful to Joseph. He was faithful to the Israelites. And he'll be faithful to you, and he'll be faithful to me. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. God, we see it in the life of Joseph. God, we saw it in, in how you fulfilled every promise given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and how the Israelites walked out of Egypt and walked into the promised land, just like Joseph declared boldly. But God, today I pray that you would give us the faith to grasp hold of you. God, in moments where we're tempted to throw in the towel, may we grab onto you and believe the truth that it's our faith, not our circumstances, that decide our destiny. And so, God, today in this moment, we are grasping hold of you. And I pray for my brothers and my sisters. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd reveal to them very clearly right now as they pray, as our worship teams lead us. God, reveal to them what that next step is for them. Where's an area where their faith needs to shape their response to their circumstances today? And Lord, as we sing the words, and never once did we ever walk alone. God, I pray that that truth would be rooted deep within us. So Lord, we love you. We praise you. Speak to us now as we cry out to you. Pray in Jesus' name.